0: And uh, we have been praying for months and months and months uh, in prayer requests, faithfully submitted, that uh, God would faithfully, uh, God would 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 show kindness and grace to Luke Franklin. And uh, he is here with us this morning. Uh, God has brought him safely home. And uh, we thank him for that. So thank you. And uh, now that you are sufficiently embarrassed, um, we will... <laughs> dismiss the kids to Praise Factory. And uh, so kids are dismissed. If you would uh, open your Bible to Acts 15, we're going to be reading, (coughs) excuse me, reading from there, uh, starting in verse 36, as we pick up uh, after the end of the first missionary journey and after the great Jerusalem council to settle the question of whether or not Christians needed to become Jews in order to be saved. And so uh, Acts chapter 15, we're going to read starting in verse 36. And then we will pray and turn to the explanation of God's word. The scripture says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, your kindness in hearing our prayers, your kindness in giving us the gospel. Your kindness in giving us your word which explains the gospel of redemption through Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things. We do not deserve them as Christians just prayed. We are broken and in desperate need of repair and you are kind to give it to us. We pray, Father, that we would guard our hearts. For there are so many things that draw us aside and that lead us astray. You by your grace, have called us to be partners with you in this mission to redeem the world. Your son lays down his life and dies for the sins of humanity. But you entrust the church with the gospel and the mission of proclaiming it to all. And there are so many things that lead us astray, that distract the external enemies of persecution, the internal enemies of moral failure, division, strife. Father, we pray that we would guard our hearts against all things that would would detract from that mission. And we pray your blessing on us that we might remain unified and whole in the gospel we ask that you would bless this word we pray that you would teach us now in jesus name amen (coughs) i'm gonna put this cough drop in my mouth and everything's gonna go well Uh, so just excuse me um a number of years ago, I was out at a pastor's conference with my, uh, my, my mentor, Mike Greiner, and uh, while looking over the book table, um, I picked up a copy of the, uh, the complete one-volume Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, and I, I was doing my thing and being cynical and mocking, and I said, why is this here uh, on the book table at a pastor's conference? We were at um, John Piper's church, and Uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I just thought it was odd, and I said, what, 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 you know, why is this at a pastor's conference? And my mentor said, oh, well, you've read them, right? And I said, no, and he said, buy that now. And he wouldn't let me go until I had read, uh, until I had bought it, and then he kept on checking in on me to see how I was doing reading. Um, He was smart. He knew me better, I think, at that point than I knew myself, and knew that I would love them. In the Lord of the Rings, if you have not seen the movies nor read the books, there is a great conflict of good versus evil. A ring is the source of all the trouble, of all the pain, (coughs) and all of the strife. And a group of people are gathered together... Uh, Frodo Baggins, the, 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 the hero in the middle, the one chosen to carry this ring to the cracks of Mount Doom and to throw it in to destroy the ring and to save the world. And as the books go on, and if you've not read them, they've been out for a long time. Too bad. This is what you see that this team, this fellowship, cannot be torn apart by anything thrown at it externally. They vanquish any and, every, and any and every enemy. Nothing can stop them. But at the end of the first book, when the fellowship comes to an end and it is broken, it's because of internal strife. We've seen this in the book of Acts. That over and over, when the internal, when the external enemy comes against the church, when persecution or resistance by religious groups, when the government comes against the church, nothing stops it. The church is truly in danger, though, when the internal enemy is not dealt with. We see immorality in Acts chapter 5. We see hurt feelings in Acts chapter 6. We see all of these difficulties rise up to break the church apart. And so Paul, mindful that Christians would look back at the book of Acts for years to come, includes these stories in the book for the purpose of instructing us how we handle the internal and external enemies. We've seen the missionary journey come to an end, and then we've seen the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And now, on the ver- after, after they have decided this important theological question, we see Paul say to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the gospel and let's see how they are. They've taken a period of rest. <coughs> Pardon me. They have had a period of rest and now, after coming back, and celebrating and being excited about the work that they've done, they now decide it's their job, it's, it's their, their call. Paul says, let's go back and visit the brothers in every city. Let's go and encourage them. Let's go build up and strengthen the church. Notice, first of all, that he calls them the brothers in every city. The brothers. This is not just some... Catchy thing that Christians say to each other. We don't just call each other brother and sister or think of each other as brother and sister because it's a cool thing to do or because it it gives us a sense of family. We use that phrase, brothers, because that is what we are. Brothers and sisters, because we have one father. And when Paul looks out at the people that he has reached with the gospel, he sees them as his brothers who need care, who need love from those who are further along in their faith. As a church, as we think about going to the unreached, we ought not to think of them as we give money to support missionaries, as we seek to uh, plant churches among unreached people groups. We ought not to look at those folks and to say, oh, they are people who are not like us. Instead, we ought to view them as what they are, our future brothers. Because God has distributed his family among the peoples of the earth, and they are waiting to hear the gospel message so that they can respond to it. Paul emphasizes care for the brothers here. First Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Gospel sharing is not just information transmission. Sharing the gospel in a conversation is not just figuring out how to win a debate or a discussion. It's not about being on one side of the political aisle and scoring points and winning a battle. It's about building the family of God, preaching release, as Colossians chapter 1 would say, to those who are captives in the kingdom of darkness and inviting them in to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The band Petra... (laughs) excuse me, the band Petra in the 80s had an album that they released called Come and Join Us. This is not pointing out the wrongness of other people's lives so that we can feel better about ourselves and our own lives. Instead, sharing the gospel is saying, come, be with us, share our lives. Let us submit ourselves to the Lord and live life together. Discipleship is time spent with those who are learning about Christ. It's walking through life with other believers through the mountains and the valleys. And so Paul, thinking of the churches that they had commended to the grace of God, says, Let us, Barnabas, go back and water the seed that we have sown. Two are better than one. Two get a better return for their labor. Let's go back and share with the brothers and nurture them and nourish them and build up the church because they will struggle apart from us, but we can help them. Paul feels this burden, and so he logically goes to the man that he thinks can help him accomplish his mission, Barnabas. But there's a problem. Verse 37 says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Mark had been useful before. Acts 12.25 describes how Barnabas and Saul came back from Jerusalem to Antioch. They were uh, bringing an offering to Jerusalem for the saints, and they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Mark had gone with them on this kind of mission service trip, and he did well. Acts 13.5, we see... John called Mark again. They arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Mark is with them throughout the island of Cyprus. But then when they sail to the region of Galatia something happens. In Acts 13:13 13, 13. now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark leaves. He does not complete the course. And so he's not with them for all of the struggling and suffering and persecution in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Let us return and water the seed that we've sown, Paul says to Barnabas. But Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Verse 38 says, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. That's an awful title to be applied to someone in the Bible, isn't it? You know, you think about titles in the Bible, it's like they call Paul the one who used to persecute us, the one who used to persecute the church of God, Judas is the one who betrayed him. John Mark's title here in Paul's mind is the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. He wimped out in Paul's mind before they even got to the battlefield. Before they even got to where persecution would be harsh and difficult, John Mark had dropped out and left the mission behind. Paul has got John Mark labeled in his mind and put on a shelf. People not to take on mission trips. Verse 39 says, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Several commentaries say that Paul might have been thinking of Proverbs twenty-five, nineteen. I thought this was interesting. Trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth. Or a foot that slips. We're not going to take him. Why? Because we needed him. We entrusted him with responsibility. And he was like a toothache on that trip. We depended on him to support us. But when we leaned out, we were ready to lean on him. He slipped. Let's leave him behind. First Timothy 3.10 Paul speaks about what's required of leaders. Speaking of deacons, he says, Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Mark, as a servant, had failed. 2 Timothy 2, 2, thinking about the future of the church and gospel proclamation, Paul instructs Timothy this way, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust To what? Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards, stewards of the gospel mysteries, that they be found faithful. Mark had failed and had left them behind. One Bible scholar says this, Past performance reveals character and properly serves as a basis for judging suitability for future service. We are who we believe we are in our mind. And at times, who we think we are can be far distant from who other people see us as Because we see all that goes on in our minds, all of our desires and all of our excuses and all of our reasons and all of our rationale. But what do other people see? Do they see any of that? No, they see our actions. And Paul, looking at Mark, said, no, we're not going to invest in him again and let him fail us. Now, Barnabas' perspective, on the other hand, may have been like this. Galatians chapter 6, 1, where Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so he messed up. This is why he said he messed up. Let's be kind to him and and bring him along and help him and train him. How about this? First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Mark failed. Mark failed left. Mark abandoned us. And yet, if we use him, Paul, will this not be an opportunity for the gospel to be displayed, that the perfect patience and mercy and kindness and love of God would be displayed to these people as we say, he has failed, but God can still use him. Isn't that the message of the gospel? Isn't God the God of second chances? When Jesus goes to the cross, and this is what we believe of the gospel message, that Jesus comes into the world to save sinners. We have worked for sin. We have done deeds of sin of which God disapproves, and we have not done the good which God approves of, and when Christ comes into the world, he takes all of that upon himself, so whoever looks to him in faith can be freed from their sins and have eternal life and can serve God. Don't you remember your own life, Paul? Luke had written about this in Acts 9, 26. When Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Why? He was telling them he was a disciple. No, but his past, his actions, he had murdered and abused and ravaged the church. They saw his actions, not what was going on in his soul. But verse 27 says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly. Paul God's rule, God's kindness, the grace of the gospel, means that there is no permanent barrier to the advance of his mission. We must be kind. We must take him. Verse 39 says there arose a sharp disagreement. There arose a heated debate. There was a principal disagreement... Paul on one side, Barnabas on the other. So that they separated from each other. At the conclusion of the first Lord of the Rings book, Frodo Baggins realizes that this ring, which appears so small, spiritually is so heavy. The book, by the way, has been analyzed by many, but I agree with the interpretation, I believe it is, of C.S. Lewis who says... That you cannot allegorize the Lord of the Rings and say anywhere, that's Jesus or this is that or that's this. You You can't pin any of that on it. But what you can find is the struggle of individuals against evil and sin. The struggle of Frodo with the ring is epic in my mind, a description of the burden of a Christian to choose between the left and the right, the good and the bad. Frodo sees the the difficulty that having this ring of power, the, the lust that it brings into the minds of others, the struggle that it's bringing into the fellowship, and he says that he must separate from the others and carry the burden alone and go on his own to Mount Doom to throw the ring into the crack. And so he leaves his companions behind to go on alone, out of principle, doing the right thing, taking the high road, Paul and Barnabas find themselves on either side of a disagreement. Paul saying there is absolutely no way we are taking him. And Barnabas saying the redemption that's in Jesus Christ says we ought to take him. A sharp disagreement. And so they separate from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. That's his home. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia. That's his home, strengthening the churches. As we look at this disagreement, and we think about guarding the gospel, protecting the truth, and fighting against the internal enemy, what can we learn? One, I think we can learn this that consistent, constant togetherness is not a realistic goal, nor is it possible. Because disagreement is inevitable in the Christian life. Sooner or later, the people that you like best are going to disagree with you about something. Here's another thing. Disagreement isn't necessarily always sinful. And try as I might, as I look through this passage and look at the data that shows up in the rest of the New Testament, I don't see any sin here. All I see is two limited human beings who believe the gospel looking at strategic decisions and not being able to come to agreement. And so they make a decision to separate. Rather than not going on mission, they decide to go separate ways and to pursue the mission at the same time, but no longer together. There is some sense in which you can look at this and see a bit of a tragedy and say, that's sad that they couldn't stay together. We ought to feel that. But as we look at it, instead, what we perhaps ought to take away as a greater meaning is that there is a way to glorify Christ and to demonstrate the gospel in the midst of conflict. It says that there's a sharp disagreement, but notice that Luke does not indict either of them. Luke does not say one was right and one was wrong. Luke does not point out the failure of Barnabas' mission or of Paul's mission. He doesn't give an indicator either way. All he does is he says that they disagreed and they separated. And then speaks about what happens next without any comment, positive or negative. I believe it's Matthew Henry who said that this example of Christian quarreling may not be used as an excuse for Christians quarreling. We can't look at this and say, well, they disagree. That means it's okay for me to disagree or to fight with someone else. Because as we look at the rest of the New Testament, (laughs) as we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see what the scriptures say about the Lord Jesus and the gospel and conflict. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, comma. So far as it depends on you, comma. Live peaceably with all. As a Christian, our goal ought to be to stop fighting. This is what I explain to my children all the time. Boys... Stop fighting. I do not mean merely, definition number one, cease the present conflict with which you are engaged in. And yes, that is the perfect interpretation of the present command. Stop fighting. But I also mean this, definition number two. When you see conflict between people, do what you can to bring peace. Be one who stops fighting. Not just disengaging from the present conflict, but being involved in ending other conflicts. Blessed, Jesus said, are the peacemakers. So often as believers, we let this go undone. We fail to get involved in conflict because conflict is uncomfortable. We don't like it when people disagree, and so we stay far away. Sometimes when we're emotionally invested with somebody who's in a conflict, We take their side because they're our friend. And so you got to be loyal instead of telling them, hey, I think you're wrong. And loving them in the way that they ought to be loved. We're called as believers to minif- minimize conflict. One reason pointed out here in the context of the book of Acts is that conflict can blow up mission. If Paul and Barnabas separate, if they form separate political parties or separate missionary strategies, people will begin to align with Paul and people with Barnabas, and perhaps the whole church will schism over this issue. We just share some principles for uh, dealing with conflict over the next couple minutes. Um, Not in any particular order. Uh, And again, I feel blessed to be able to share this information in a time where we are not engaged in any large conflict as a church. So this is more like plant the seeds and store them for someday rather than apply them to this particular situation right now. Principles for conflict. Avoid imputing wrongdoing if all that's wrong is that your feelings are affected. Does that make sense? Sometimes we get into conflict over things and you know, it's like we're we're planning something and, and we think that it ought to happen this way and somebody thinks it ought to happen that way, and because this person looks like they're gonna prevail, their way is gonna go, we're upset, maybe we're a little embarrassed, we don't wanna say, all right, we'll do it your way, or I was wrong, okay, you know. And what we do is then we make it a bigger issue. We start to look for all kinds of things that 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 um, that are wrong with that person's idea. Or if if we're really going spiritually astray, we start to think of all the reasons why people shouldn't Listen to them because of all their personal spiritual defects. Galatians 6 points us in a different way. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why is it as believers that so often we are ready and, and willing to break out the, the, the branding iron and to label people Christian, not a Christian, Right? wrong instead of in a spirit of gentleness saying, how can I help shepherd this person in the way in which they should go? We're into labeling. Last time I checked, it was Jesus who was going to separate the sheep from the goats. Last time I checked, when the devil (laughs) sowed weeds in the field and and, and the, the workers in the field came to the owner of the field and said, should we pull out the weeds? The owner said, no, let the weeds grow. When we harvest all things, we will separate the weeds from the wheat. We, who are spiritual, and we ought to desire to be in that category when we we read Galatians 6.1, we ought to work to restore others in a spirit of gentleness and love. And when we see someone going astray... Instead of beginning a conflict with them or separating from them, we ought to focus on turning them back towards the Lord. But the scripture goes on. Paul is wise. He knows that it's not just always other people's problems. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ being to love others. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't be proud in conflict. Embrace conflict with humility. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Be charitable. Matthew Henry says, Repentance teaches us to be severe in our reflections upon ourselves. You want to be hard on someone? You want to be tough? You want to be critical? You have a critical spirit? Point all those guns at yourself, Matthew Henry says. But love teaches us to be candid in our reflections upon others. We ought to be kind towards others. We ought to speak the truth in love to them, but we ought to save our severest reproaches for ourselves. Again, be humble. 2 Corinthians 6, one. Paul, in the midst of conflict, Paul is experiencing the Corinthian church saying, Paul is obviously not an apostle. He suffers. He doesn't get paid. Um, you know, he, there's all these marks that they're seeing in Paul where they're saying he's not an apostle and he's appealing to them and he's saying, here's the evidence that I'm an apostle and here's the way I ministered among you and here's how I loved you and they're still pulling away. And this is what he says. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. How many times in conflict Do we pull back to protect ourselves, to guard ourselves from hurt? And we withhold love, and we withhold affirmation, and we withhold saying, you know what, I love you. Can we please work this out? Why do we do that? Why don't we instead appeal to others and say, look, this is the way that I see the situation? Am I wrong? Can, can, we, can we make this work for the glory of God and for the gospel and for our friendship and our joy? Can we be honest with one another? Why so often when there's conflict do we let it turn into dishonest communication? And instead of appealing to one another in love, we put on all kinds of masks in our communication. Be wise. Proverbs ten twelve says this, Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. Love is willing to forgive. Hatred stirs up disagreement. You know, the truth is that sometimes we're involved in conflict because we enjoy conflict. In some twisted part of us, we delight in seeing someone else fail, we delight in learning that someone else isn't perfect. Or perhaps we've not forgiven and we're delighting in someone else's fall. We ought to identify that for what it is. The Bible calls that hatred. But love covers all offenses. Love is willing to say, let's just, let's deal with it and make it go away. Not in some kind of weird denial, but just saying, let's just acknowledge that it's there. Let's acknowledge failure and say, okay, how do we avoid this in the future and move on? Be wise. Love covers all offenses. Speak directly and truthfully. I talked about this a little bit, but I just want to say this. There's this problem I think that a lot of Christians engage in, uh, or or this behavior, where we go through this period of endless consultation and discernment, where we're like, you know, I just need some help in perceiving how to how to handle this situation. Oh, really? What is it? Well, I've got this disagreement with so and so, and we talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Right. And and then we never actually go directly to that person. We just consult this person, then this person, then this person, then this person. What should I do about this? That's not called discernment. That's called gossip. Right? What we ought to do is to be brave and to be bold and to go directly to that person. And we ought to go directly to that person. Uh, One pastor has articulated to his church what they call the 11th commandment. And that's this, do not rebuke each other by email or text message, right? If you're going to be bold and you're going to confront someone for, for how you think they're, they're failing to live their Christian life or in a way that they have, they have failed you or that they've offended you or hurt you, you ought to go directly to them. My personal rule is if, if I delete a sentence in an email more than twice, that means I need to make a phone call right? If I'm like, man, I really can't figure out how to say this. It's like, it's time to pick up the phone. It's too personal. We ought to be honest with one another. And when somebody has done something wrong, if they've offended us, if they have offended others, if we see them living in a way that's not helpful or is actually harming others, we ought to, like Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love so that we can grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. A failure to deal with division and disagreement and strife in the Christian life is a failure to love. And there's no plainer way to put it. There's a, a line in the book by Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead. I do not endorse a whole lot of what Ayn Rand says, but I, this just leapt out at me. In the middle of, of a giant conflict and, and pettiness, the main character in the fountainhead, it says that he was overwhelmed by the enormity of the smallness that was destroying the world. I love that. The enormity of the smallness. Think about it. Think about how petty. <laughs> think about how pettiness has interrupted. Mission in your experience in the church in the past. Think about how someone's failure to deal with conflict at the beginning led to greater conflict. Think about how if that person, maybe that person is you, had just said, you know what, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Think of all that would have been stopped. All that we would have been spared of. James, speaking of the tongue, says it's a single spark that sets the whole forest ablaze. Jesus gives us a pattern for dealing with conflict when sin is involved. There is a pattern laid out here when sin is not involved. How we handle things. I think there's good general principles for here. Problems that can be solved easily if we will simply be obedient. If your brother sins against you, go and tell tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't go gather a bunch of people and have a bunch of discussions so that everybody knows now and everybody feels weird and nobody knows what to say and they're like, I'm praying for you. Have you dealt with that situation yet? No. Go to your brother. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. Have you ever wound up in this situation? Two people have a disagreement. And then one person shares that disagreement with you in confidence and now you are now bound. You cannot say anything to either of these people. You can't, you can't force them to deal with it because it's confidential. You're sitting on it, right? You're dealing with it. You're, you, you've, been, you've been silenced. That's no good. We ought to deal with things directly. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Or, quote the verse that says, love covers a multitude of sins and just let it go. Maybe they're tired. Maybe the reason they were harsh with you is because their shoes are tight. Maybe the reason that they were frustrated and upset this morning is that their toddler keeps opening the front door and saying, bye, Frodo, and the dog runs out of the house. Four times yesterday. And the problem is that the kid won't repent. You know, he thinks it's funny. And it's like the, 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 the teenager needs to keep running after the dog, you know, and I'm like, I gotta go preach. I don't have time for this. That may or may not have actually happened. <laughs> if your brother does not listen, take one or two others along with you, not your entire small group. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Look, if there's disagreement, you might just want to bring someone else along after you've had that initial conversation and say, Hey, I, I just, I'm just i having a hard time getting my, myself across to this person. Could you come help me? And then that person says, No, that's not what I'm hearing him say. What I'm hearing him say is this. Do you hear that? You know, And, and have someone come and, and make peace. Even if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. How often in the United States do we tell it to the church before we go and tell our brother his fault? The problems that would be solved if the church was just obedient. A failure to deal with division correctly is a failure to love. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think the reason this story is preserved here, like many others, is that the church does right. Paul and Barnabas seeing this division, knowing that there is no way around it, Paul saying absolutely positively, we cannot give this guy a free ride. He needs to know that he's blown something up. Barnabas saying, no, we should show grace. We see in the aftermath in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul mentions Barnabas a while later and still speaks highly of him, apparently, no ill will. Who was right? Team Paul? If you're sitting there nodding inside, but maybe not nodding outside because you don't want other people to judge you, that means you probably have a very low sense of mercy and a very high sense of justice. If you're with Team Barnabas, you probably have a very high sense of mercy and a very low sense of justice. You're like, ah, it's okay, forgive the guy. Maybe Paul was wrong. Mark apparently did very well. Peter, the apostle, loved him. In 1 Peter 5.13, he says, to the, to the church that he's writing to. She who is at Babylon, who is chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Later in, in, Philipp, in, in the book of Philemon, chapter 1, verse 24, somehow Luke has, uh, Mark has come back around because as, as he's closing out the letter, he's expressing greetings and he says that such and such a person greets you and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So now, uh, years later, He has risen to the level where Paul would be willing to call him my fellow workers. We don't know why people disagree about things all the time, and every problem doesn't need to be solved, but we need to live out the gospel faithfully as we disagree about things. Out of this disagreement comes a doubling of missionary labor. Out of the one pair, two pairs were made. Barnabas takes Mark. Paul takes Silas. In Paul's last words we see his final opinion of Mark. 2 Timothy 4:11 Paul appealing to Timothy to finish up and to come and to join him where he is, telling him to bring my cloak and bring the parchments and telling him to come before winter and in Luke or 2 Timothy, sorry, chapter 4 verse 11 he closes out his letter this way. He says Luke alone is with me my only friend, apparently uh, Demas had departed because he loved the world and he left Paul in prison. Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you. For he's very useful to me for ministry. Maybe Mark needed someone to fire him in order to grow up a little bit, you know? Maybe he needed the pain of somebody saying, nope, I'm not going to have anything to do with you, to change and to challenge his character. And at the same time, maybe he needed somebody to say, I still believe in you, let's go. Division's not always a matter of right and wrong. Disagreement isn't always a matter of right and wrong. Sometimes people's personal opinions matter. What we need to do is to make sure that we are always lifting up the gospel. Sometimes we have to be tough with people. Sometimes we have to show mercy. Sometimes we think that we've got, somebody's got to show mercy when what they're convinced is they need to be tough. And so what we need to do, and vice versa, what we need to do is to always be humble and to keep the gospel in focus. For the glory of God for our joy, and for the mission. Think about the connection between how we love each other, how we fight off the internal, army, the internal enemy of bitterness and division and strife for the glory of God. And now think about this. As we move out into the world with our list of rights and wrongs, all the things that Christians do and shouldn't do, whether they're cultural or universal from the scriptures, We're coming to the world, and we're saying, live this way. And then the world looks inside, and what does it see? If it sees bitterness and division and strife, it's going to say, what's going on in the church is no better than what's going on out in the world. And there's no truth there. And by the way, Jesus gives the world the right to judge the church this way. All men will know that you are my disciples. By what? your love for one another. And so think about the healing nature of the gospel within the church in terms of disagreement and division and the mission. The mission is what? Proclaim Christ to those who do not know him. Think of this, Ephesians 4.32 as we close. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. We need to embody this behavior towards one another. Why? Because this is the way that God loves us. And so let us love one another. Let us overcome disagreement and division. Let us bear with one another when we disagree about specific things for the glory of God, for our joy, for the mission, for the church. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you as I prayed internally that you would aid my throat. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who bear with me in allergy season. Father, I pray that, that we would have had seeds planted today. I pray that weeds which have grown up, the source of bitterness... sins unforgiven between brothers, I pray that those would be healed. I pray that you'd give others the boldness today, Lord, to go to some and to say, I judged you or I resented you and I repent of that. Will you forgive me? And I pray that you'd give brothers and sisters the grace to say, yes, I love you. For the glory of God, for our fellowship, for our church, for the mission. And because I too am a sinner, I forgive you and that relationships would be healed. Lord, we pray for our leadership, for our workers, for our newcomers, for all, Lord, I pray that we would have a strong sense of the goodness and the graciousness of your character and the gospel. And I pray that we would be kind to one another in all things, that we would be tender-hearted, not allowing our hearts to be hardened, and that we would forgive one another, and that we'd bear with one another when Needed, because that is the way that you treat us each and every day. You are the only person in the entire universe who is right to be irritated by others. None of us can say the same. We all need mercy. May we show it to others, Father. We pray your grace as we go. We pray that this would have practical implications, Lord. And we pray that stories told in the future of how we handle conflict would demonstrate the glory of God and not the sinfulness of man. We thank you for your love and your kindness toward us, and we thank you for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.